Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Good morning. I am Pastor Mike Graham. If we haven't met, I'm in charge of like discipleship here at Bible Center, which means I'm always thinking about how do we take that next step in growth spiritually. Uh, This morning, we are still in our Renewed series. I think we're coming to the end of our Renewed series, and this is what it has looked like so far. The first sermon was, Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, everything changes. But also when he comes back, those who have rejected Jesus, we're told in Scripture, will spend eternity separated from the Jesus they've rejected. Those who have believed in Jesus will spend all of eternity, and we talked about this last week, in a place called heaven, with Jesus face to face. Today, we're going to go a little bit deeper into that last sermon. In some ways, this is almost like the second part of a two-part sermon on heaven and then the new heavens and the new creation. So we go to heaven to be with the Lord forever, but then he takes us to this place called the new heavens and the new earth. So today, we're going to talk about that. So last week, we kind of explored this statement. In heaven, we will be with God and one another on an unending journey of increasing joy. And this brings incredible hope in hard moments to us. We're going to be with him. You'll be with each other. And we're going to be on this this journey where we get to know him more and more over time. So we really spent a lot of time talking about that. But there's a lot of things we didn't talk about. So today we're going to dive deeper into our eternal state. This week we're going to explore what the Bible says about the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to cover four things today. The first thing is we're going to reflect on some of our misconceptions. Like it or not, we have misconceptions about our forever with God. Then we're going to talk about the fact that restoration is central to the gospel. It's not an afterthought. It's not a byproduct. It is central to the gospel. Then, and we're going to spend the majority of our time here, we're going to rejoice that everything broken will be made new. And finally, we'll end with some real-life applications of what it looks like to have an eternal mindset. So let's start with reflecting on some of our misconceptions. So as Christians, the world tells us a lot about our forever. Uh, cartoons like The Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, like they die all the time, and they always float up with wings. Uh, movies, interesting books where people claim to have gone to heaven and come back. But even Christians sometimes will talk to one another about forever, and they just have some interesting ways of viewing it. Sometimes they're not always from God's word. For example, we often think of heaven as a place that we go up to, that heaven is going to be up there, that we're going to spend eternity up there. We'll spend time learning that that maybe isn't the case. We also spend time talking about the fact that we're going to be away from or disconnected from the physical world. Somehow we think that physical is bad. That's just something that we've grown to believe oftentimes in the Western world. But Jesus took on flesh and blood, and Jesus was perfectly holy. They, the Trinity created all that exists, the physical world, and they looked at it, and they said, it is good, it is very good. So physical isn't bad. Sin is bad. Physical is not bad. Sometimes we also think this, that redemption is only about us and people, and we just forget about the whole rest of God's creation. We also have this interesting set of thoughts where we think we're going to like float, fly, hover, there's going to be clouds all around us, and eventually someone's going to bust out a harp and go for it, and there might be some wings involved. Uh, Like we just think that. Scripture doesn't always talk that way. We also have to recognize this. 
We have been influenced by Western thought and our American culture. We oftentimes get overly focused on ourselves. Individualism is a thing that's kind of part of who we are. We often think the most important thing about salvation is my salvation, that I'm ultimately going to be okay with Jesus. But scripture says that in actuality is much bigger than that. You are one piece of a much bigger puzzle. God has all of his creation in mind when it comes to redemption, not just you, not just me. Which takes us to our second point. Restoration is central to the gospel. Everything in scripture the work of Jesus has been pointing to the new heavens, the new earth, the entire time. So what I'd like us to do is to think through the 10 words of the gospel and see how restoration fits in. The 10 words are just five phrases that make it as easy as possible to understand the work of Jesus and God's plan of redemption, which is called the gospel for all of, all of time. We start with this one, God creates. And we learn that God made all things. He made all things with intentionality. All things that he made were designed and made to reflect his glory and his goodness. We are a part of that creation, so you are a part of it. But all of creation matters to God. God looked at his physical world and he saw it and he said, it is good, it is very good. Mankind, the world, the universe, the galaxies, God saw it and said, it is good. When God created, he made a place called the Garden of Eden, where mankind, Adam and Eve, would have the opportunity to hang out with and walk with God himself. It was like a, a unique place where God's physical universe and heaven itself sort of overlapped in the Garden of Eden. Heaven ultimately is where God's presence is manifested. So there was this place of overlap where the Garden of Eden and God's presence, heaven, would overlap and God would walk and be with his people. But we know it didn't maintain here. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve, our forefathers, rebelled against God, and they sinned against God, and that sin broke everything. So the next phrase is, sin breaks. Now I'm going to go through a list of a couple things that sin broke. Remember this list, because it will be the content when we talk about what God has made new. So first, sin broke our relationship with God. Remember, he walked with us in the garden, and then when we sinned, everything changed. It also broke our relationships with one another. Immediately, Adam and Eve went from having no shame to being filled with shame. And even now today, you can sense it, you can feel it in your relationships with those you love the most and those maybe you don't enjoy that much. There's always conflict. There's guilt, there's fear, there's competitiveness, uh, there's pride. Our relationships are just broken. Also, if you haven't noticed, your body is broken. Okay, one day your body will decay and you won't get to enjoy it anymore. Your body is broken. That includes your mind, your hearts, your motivations, uh, your intentions, your desires. It is broken because of sin. In fact, all of God's creation, every tree, every animal, the ocean, the world, every star, the galaxy itself has been broken, tainted, and affected by sin. All of God's creation is now impacted by sin. Which leads to the next phrase, Jesus saves. God's plan of salvation doesn't just impact the brokenness of our relationship with God. It does that, but it does more than that. Jesus dies on the cross and sets forth into motion a plan to redeem all things, all of his creation. 
So his desire isn't just to save you and me, but to redeem, to restore, and to renew all things. With this in mind, the next two phrases are necessary, and they make sense to really fully understand the gospel message. The next phrase is, Jesus transforms. So right now, okay, you may think that our salvation climaxes with the day we're saved, but there's more to it than that. Jesus continues to transform you. He's transforming those who believe, and he's also starting to transform the world in that there's people all over the world still making decisions to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So he's transforming, but this transformation process moves towards a moment in time, and that moment in time is when God restores. When God restores, everything climaxes. It doesn't climax when you and I just say yes to Jesus. That's big, it's important, but it doesn't end there. The climax is when God says he makes everything new. And all of creation is changed forever. Everything is made new. When God's creation is redeemed, renewed, and restored, then it will perfectly reflect his glory and his goodness forever. We will learn as we spend time working through this today, that the new heavens and the new earth don't just merely overlap at this point. So in the Garden of Eden, they overlapped. But at this point, heaven and earth will become one and the same. They become one. In Revelation 21.5, near the end of everything, it says, he who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. So the conversation last week speaks to where believers go when we initially die. But today we speak to what happens to all things that have been broken and how is it set right for all of eternity. Let's move to the fact that we're called to rejoice. We're called to rejoice that everything broken will be made new. So let's work through our list. The first thing was our relationship with God himself. Because Jesus died on the cross and stood in our place, our relationship with God is now open for business. We have full access to God himself. And sometimes we think that's the only component that there is to salvation. Your salvation is one piece of a much, much larger puzzle of God's redemptive plan. He also fixes men's our broken relationships. In heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, there are no more sinful desires. There's no pride or rivalry or envy. There's no more, I wish I had his car. I wish we lived in her house. I wish my kids went to that college. There's no desire for power, so there's no oppression. There's never someone trying to put someone else under them. Fear is gone. Shame is gone. Guilt is gone. And then we will be living in a world where one another is a place where we can experience love and grace and truth consistently. There are no more broken relationships. So here's a little bit of a sidebar. And I'll be honest, as I talk about this, some of this is just me guessing. I'm gonna do that a little bit in this sermon because you have to. I've never been to the new heavens and the new earth. You haven't. So sometimes I'm going to guess. And when I guess, please take it at that level of authority. Very, very low. So Jesus says this. So this is still high level of authority. In Luke chapter 20, verses 34 through 36, in our relationships in the new heaven and the new earth, there won't be marriage. People won't be given in marriage. For some of you, you think, wow, that sounds terrible. I love my spouse. My thought was we would be together for eternity. 
And some of you are like, whew, cannot wait for heaven. Regardless of your response, and I don't want to know what it is, um, the reality is, is that things are going to change in heaven. Well, why is that? So this is me guessing. For one, we will experience deep and profound fellowship with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So instead of just having one that we uniquely love, one that we're uniquely committed to, we have the ability to be deeply connected to each and every single person. In heaven, there's no need for procreation. So today in our world, one of the greatest things that we have joy in is physical intimacy. But believe it or not, in heaven, that will pale in comparison to the continuous eternal joy that we will experience there. I know that's beyond comprehension, but it seems like we won't miss it because there's no sorrow in heaven. It is only a small example in this world of the enormous joy that we'll experience in the next world. So again, when it comes to our relationships with one another, racism is gone. Poverty is gone. Abuse of power is gone. We'll, all those things will be gone and we will live under the rule and reign of God himself. So God will restore and redeem and renew our relationships. Another fun part of the new heavens and the new earth is our bodies. And some of you can't wait for this. Our bodies are gonna be renewed. So God's gonna remake the heavens and the earth and your body. You and I will receive a new imperishable forever body. It talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. So we're gonna hit some of the verses, but if you wanna go deeper, there's a lot in this chapter. It says this, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body, it is raised as a spiritual body. So what the Bible is saying here is if you've placed your faith in Jesus and your forever is going to be with him, he gives you a forever body that can handle what you're about to experience in the new heavens and the new earth. I've had some ask me, what about cremation? What about those who've lost appendages? What about folks who've been lost at sea and have been eaten by the fishes, like by the fish? Like what about those bodies? I don't have a clear answer because the Bible doesn't say, but my suggestion is, is that the God who knit your body together in the womb can knit together your forever body, regardless of what happened to it. He can handle it. He'll figure it out. We can trust him. The new body that we receive is 100% connected to and a result of the gospel. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. We know that. We believe that. Christ has been resurrected from the dead. The grave is empty, right? He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So those who have believed, who have passed on, who have died, whose spirits are with Jesus right now, Jesus being raised from the dead is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits only make sense if there are more to follow. There have to be more to follow or there are no first fruits. The gospel itself speaks to this moment. When we place our faith in Jesus, we place our faith in his death and his resurrection. And the resurrection points to the fact that we too one day will be resurrected. Okay? He was the first fruits, which means that we will be the second fruits. On the cross, Jesus lost everything. Just like you and I lost everything in the fall, he lost everything on the cross, 
including his relationship with the Father. Do you remember the moment on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes through the loss of everything. He experiences the full brokenness of the fall. So he stands in our place. He bears our pain. He takes our strife on himself. He takes our brokenness and the brokenness of the entire creation on himself. He takes on our punishment. He dies our death. Why? So that we might experience his life, his forever resurrection life. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, which means it's the first of many. It points to our resurrection. Because I know Jesus bodily resurrected from the dead, I know, you can know with certainty that you also will then be resurrected bodily from the dead. To place our faith in the resurrection of Jesus is to place our faith in God restores. Catch it again. To place our faith in the resurrection of Jesus is to place our faith in God restores. It's connected to the gospel. It's deep, it's central. When you believe Jesus has been raised from the dead, what that means is you believe you will be raised from the dead because he is the first of many. He's the first fruits. You are the second, root, second fruits. So our body will be restored. In addition to that, our mind and our hearts, that is our emotions and our motivations, will also be renewed. The Bible right now talks about this war that takes place inside of us. And you feel it, I feel it. You want to do what's good. You want to do what's right. But then as you make the effort, you struggle and you fail. I do too. So that's part of our experience. But when we are made new, that war is changed. In fact, that war is gone. Why? Because we will live under God's rule. And living under God's rule with this new heart and this new mind, temptation is gone. Sinful thoughts are gone. Our internal desires have completely changed. Our heart and our mind are no longer at war with itself or with God. Rather, they reflect God's desires. They reflect God's love. So often I've said, and I'll probably keep saying it, is I wouldn't mind having a body that's at least six foot tall. Like when I get that new body, like I've put in my request, you know, I filled out that request that you get for your new body when you send it to heaven, and mine says at least six foot tall, please. Okay, so mine says that. Uh, my dad's six foot two, my wife is taller than me, my son is now like six inches taller than me. I wouldn't mind being a little taller. But in the new heavens and the new earth, it says that our desires change. So I no longer am going to be competitive with my brothers who are both six feet tall. I'm not going to be competitive with my son who's six foot two. I might be completely happy being five foot eight. So maybe it won't matter how tall my body is in my forever body. So God changes our body, he changes our hearts, and he changes our minds. And here's the bulk of what I want to talk about today. All of God's creation is remade, renewed, and restored. Second Peter 3.10 says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So the earth has already been judged once by water in the days of Noah. This is next level. Here it says that it will be judged by fire. The elements themselves will be destroyed. I don't know exactly what the elements are, but it sounds like God's taking the world and all of, his, all of his creation down to the studs, okay? Down to the studs. 
And then from there, he's going to remake it. It says in verse 13 of 2 Peter, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward, not necessarily to the fire, but what happens after the fire, to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So in Revelation 21, which we're going to get to, in 2 Peter chapter 3 that we just read, the word new, this is the word kainos in the Greek. And this word's interesting. It doesn't mean that God's making something brand new. It means he's renewing something. So it's not brand new. He's not making a completely new thing. He's renewing it. So he's bringing it down to the studs and he's rebuilding it. What that means is God doesn't give up on his creation. Rather, he redeems it, he renews it, he restores it. He doesn't just give up on it, much like he didn't give up on you, much like he didn't give up on me. He saw us in our filth, he saw us in our brokenness, and he said, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to renew you, and I'm going to restore you to be with me forever. He looks at his creation and has the same response. Revelation 21.1 says this, and I hope this gives you a goosebump somewhere in your body. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Oftentimes we focus on us going up to heaven. Is that what's being described here? Heaven comes down to be on the new earth. There's a new heavens and a new earth. And then heaven comes down to be on the earth. So we don't focus on heaven going up. Our final destination is actually coming down. It is here in the new heavens and the new earth where it says that God himself will reside with us and be with us forever. It's in this new heavens and new earth where we will be and he will be. And it's no longer a situation where they overlap. Heaven and earth become one in the same. Heaven is on earth. The new heavens and the new earth are together forever. Let's look at a couple more verses. Verse 15 says this, The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, which is a little less than 1,500 miles in length, and as wide, as high as it is long. So heaven comes down and sits on the new earth. And is this exactly the dimensions, or is he being figurative? I don't know. If he's being literal, then this is a gigantic city. Imagine a city that's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long. This is a ginormous city. And what's also interesting is he says it's 1,500 miles high. Well, what is that talking about? Imagine taking a Hebrew who read this in the second century and taking them to New York City or to Dubai today and put them in the middle of Manhattan. And if they looked up, they'd say, is this heaven? Look how high it is. So our cities keep getting higher. When God makes a city, could it be 1,500 miles high? Again, this is speculation, but maybe, because this is a city that's going to fit everyone who's ever believed. And likely, they could all fit in a city this size. Just interesting to think of. Verse 22, it says this, I did not see, I did not see a temple in the city. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
So in the Old Testament, after the Garden of Eden, you see the tabernacle and the temple focusing in a, functioning in a way where there's this holy of holies where God periodically would meet with his people. And again, you see heaven and earth sort of overlap in a spot where God would make his presence manifest in a unique way. So that was something that would happen. But in the forever new heavens and new earth, there's no temple because there's no overlapping. They've become the same. Jesus fulfills all the forms and functions of the temple. So the temple points to Jesus. And it's the work of Jesus that creates a situation where the restoration of all things is possible. So there's no need of a temple. There's no need of overlap. We have God himself. We live in his presence. It's in and through Jesus that we have perfect and eternal fellowship with God. It's in and through Jesus that all of creation will fully and completely reflect the glory and goodness of God forever. Let's talk a little bit more about the city. Verse 23, it says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth, just notice this stuff as we're reading. Sometimes you just glance over it. So he's talking about nations. It says there's kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. So sometimes in Revelation, we get pictures of dragons and clearly it's, it's imagery and there's some symbolism, but sometimes it speaks pretty clearly. Like there's a lot of clarity here. It goes on to say, on no day will its gates be shut. Like, that's just pretty clear. The gates won't be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Again, he's talking about the heavenly city that will be sitting on the new earth. So let's just make some observations, because maybe this is a little more literal than other parts of Revelation. I want to honor that. Again, these are observations. It looks like we get to go in and out of the city. We can go into the city and be there, but it also appears that we can go out of the city and be around and at different points in the new heavens and the new earth. It seems like there are actual nations still. What does that look like? I don't know. Earlier, it talked about there being kings of these nations. It's possible, maybe even likely, that we'll have roles, responsibilities, and maybe even jobs that we love with our forever bodies and our forever home. We may not need to sleep. There's no night there. Perhaps our new bodies are not bodies that need to sleep. We know from scripture that we get to eat in the new heavens and the new earth, but maybe we don't ever have to have nap time, which sounds like heaven to some of you to have nap time, but in heaven, you may not need nap time. So we will actually go out and around and explore and be involved with God's renewed earth. We'll be able to explore the new earth, but here's another question. Will we be able to explore the new heavens? Will we have like an Elon Musk mindset in the new heavens and the new earth? What will God allow us to be able to travel to and to see when it comes to his new heavens and his new earth? I have no idea. Are you going to be the next Captain Picard? I don't know. But like, what will God give us access to in the new heavens and the new earth? Because we know that all of those things reflect his glory and his goodness. In Psalm 19, it's this beautiful psalm at the beginning where he says that the heavens declare, we're talking about the broken heavens, the heavens that are tainted by sin, it says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, 
they pour forth speech night and day. In other words, every moment of every day since they were created, the heavens pour forth speech talking about the goodness and the greatness of God. And these are the broken heavens. These are the sin-tainted heavens. How much more in the new heavens and the new earth will they accurately and clearly proclaim and display the goodness and the glory of God? We'll get to be in heaven and see the face of God, but we'll also be in a situation where we can look at what he made and say, this is also glorious. You are glorious. Look at your beauty. Look what you've made. So God's creation is designed to reflect upon his goodness and his glory. How much more so will it be true in the new heavens and the new earth? If you think West Virginia is pretty now, wait until God brings it to his studs and renews it and remakes it. I can't wait for us to take a walk and see what it looks like in those days. My mom passed away about five or six years ago, right before my dad retired. So my dad's retiring and they're hoping to start traveling together. Well, they never got to do that. And I love the fact that it could be in the new heavens and the new earth that my dad, my mom, I'll jump in on it. We could exit the gates and potentially go and walk and enjoy all the different places that they didn't get to explore and enjoy after retirement in the new heavens and the new earth to explore, to visit, to enjoy all that God has made. Our God will redeem, renew, and restore all of his creation. So what? We have to have some takeaway point. Does this matter? How does this affect us day to day? How does it affect the way I think, the way I feel, the way I live? So I want to throw a couple points of application at you. And as I do, I want you to check yourself. Are these things that affect you, do you think this way? Do they push you? Do they motivate you? Number one, I believe when we think this way, when we have an eternal mindset, we can truly sing and truly believe, it is well with my soul. When we know everything that's broken will be made new, it changes the way my heart functions. It changes the, what my head thinks about. Your broken body, your broken relationships, the pain you experience every day inside and outside, one day all of it is made new. When you think that way, when you believe that, when your faith lands there, you can sing, it is well with my soul. When everything is falling apart, it is well with my soul. Number two, with an eternal mindset, we see life as an opportunity for fruitful labor. Paul demonstrates this to us in Philippians 1.21. It says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he recognizes that dying and going to be with Jesus is better than anything he can experience here. A couple of verses later, he says, it is far better to be with Jesus than to be here. If you study it, if you think about it, you've got to agree with that. Yeah, the moment we die, it might be painful, but it is so much better to be with Jesus in his presence than to be here. But he goes on to say, if I am to go on living in the body, it will mean fruitful labor for me. He won't live his life haphazardly. He won't just hope things go okay. If he's going to stay in this body, he's going to do it so that he can live out a life of fruitful labor. How are you doing with that? Each moment, each day, each week that you have is an opportunity for you to share the love of Christ, to disciple people, to have an impact in your family, in the lives of your friends, where you work. 
Is your life a life committed to fruitful labor? Number three, we also live for the sake of others. Philippians 1.25 says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. So this is in context of the previous verse. I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress in joining the faith. Paul isn't staying for his sake. He isn't refusing going home to be with Jesus for his sake. He's doing it for their sake. He wants them to grow in joy and in faith. So he stays here with excitement, knowing that his life can impact others. He lives for the sake of others. Number four, the things we do in this life, and I want you to believe this, the things we do in this life impact our eternity. The Bible says so. The Bible talks about treasures. You really can increase your joy in heaven by what you do today. I don't think we like that thought, but it is clearly true. The idea of storing up treasures here on earth, yes, that's selfish. Yes, that can be prideful. But the idea of storing up treasures in heaven, it's not selfish, it's not prideful. Why? Because the only way you store up treasures in heaven is by giving away of yourself. It doesn't come through pride and selfishness. It comes through selflessness and giving your stuff away. That's how you store up treasures in heaven. So it's not bad to store up treasures in heaven. It actually shows that you believe what God said. It shows your faith and your love for him and for people who you want to see saved. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 says this, The Thessalonians were a group of people that Paul discipled. And he said this to them, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? So he's picturing the day when he sees Jesus face to face. What is he going to glory in? What is he going to be excited about? Where will his joy be? Is it not from the Thessalonians? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when he walks into the presence of Jesus, what he's thinking about is the Thessalonians and the fact that he's given his life to them. He's watched them become disciples who make disciples. His joy goes up in the presence of Jesus because of them, because of the fruitful labor he did here. That's something that we should think about. It makes a difference. Our days here affect our moments there. Jesus says it this way, Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but he's telling you to do it. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where the thieves do not break in and steal. The fifth one. We must set our hearts on eternity. Jesus in that section goes on to say one more thing. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Have you done a heart check lately? Have you done a heart check lately? If I were to spend time looking at your decisions, your hobbies, your checkbook, your relationships, would it be obvious that you are a person clearly focused on eternity? Of these five things, I would like you to pick one or two of them to focus on and to think about today. Don't let today go by without you being impacted and changed. What are you going to grab a hold of? What are you going to work on and think about? We learned today that restoration is central to the gospel. It's not a byproduct. It's the purpose, the driving purpose. One day, God will make everything new. You, the church, and all of his creation. Those who have a passion for their forever with God, for the restoration of all things, oftentimes share in this prayer. Revelation twenty-two twenty. 20. 
says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. And then the response of the author is this, amen, come Lord Jesus. How often do you pray, amen, come Lord Jesus. Let's take a moment and let's pray that together. Aren't you ready to go home? Aren't you ready to be with him forever? Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you. We recognize that you one day will restore all things. I cannot wait for a new body, for a new mind, a new heart, new desires. You've promised to do so. Jesus, because you are the first fruits from the grave, we know that we are the second fruits. Because you rose from the dead, you one day will raise us from the dead. We love you, we thank you, and we can't wait to see you. So Jesus, we come before you and we proclaim and we request, come Lord Jesus, come soon. In Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.